It says, you discussed renunciation of possessions and tangible objects during today's Dhamma talk. Does renunciation also include the intangible, for example, mental formations, perceptions, unskillful thoughts, etc.? Did anybody hear me mention that? So I think I did uh, mention that. Maybe you were, uh, had dozed off for a few seconds or <laughs> was, uh, is in some other way uh, missed that. But yeah, I, I said that even our extra unnecessary mental baggage that we carry around with us, we want to renounce that. And that includes negative thoughts and uh, any other types of uh, uh, things that you're still uh, clinging to. That, you know, don't bring you any real sort of uh, benefit. Of course, it's, you can only renounce that when you've developed a high degree of, uh, you know, mindfulness and and so on, that you can actually, you know, uh, let go of them. Yesterday, you said, we shouldn't turn outside for satisfaction because the world doesn't care and most people don't care. Uh, they care about themselves. How do we find love and happiness in a world like this? Now, I... You know, I may, I may have mentioned something like that. That uh, I, you know, most people don't care about you, and uh, because you know, but of course there there are exceptions. You know, your your close family members and other people may care about you. But I'm talking about the, the world in general, and. Uh, invest heavily in your depending on the external world for your happiness. That's what I was in, in, meant to say or implied was we shouldn't uh, depend too heavily on the outside world for our satisfaction because it's independable. Because the objects are changing and then the people as we just mentioned, uh, they're also uh, changing. Uh, and the only thing you can rely on basically is your own mind and that only after you've developed it to a, a high degree and have reestablished some connection with the awareness, with the, with the ever-present uh, uh, awareness that's always there just beneath the surface of our active mind. That's the only real dependable uh, 
thing, but once we've cultivated it, we've you know kind of made some good progress in making it a, a more or less a, a near permanent type of thing where we any moment we can stop and boom, we can come to that kind of level of just the knowing mind awareness and rest there for some uh, minutes or, or longer to be able to do that almost at will that is the the skill of uh, you know meditation of course that that's a very high level of attainment but nevertheless it is uh, doable and reachable even for lay people if you you know decide that that's something worth your effort you know How does one distinguish between the ego and the mind? What are some meditations for pride? Pride, you know, conceit and vanity, all those words are kind of similar. Uh, Anyway, you know, the ego is part of the mind. I mean, when we say the mind, it's a very complex phenomenon, you know, because there's a lot of aspects of the mind. And, of course, the main part of the mind is consciousness. But in order to experience the world and, and be alive and do things, we have to have also feeling, perception, volition, memory, and so on. Uh, but and those are the uh, contents of the consciousness. Consciousness basically is just like you know a light. But if there's nothing to illuminate, then you know you don't really see anything. So it's what we're aware of is the feelings when we feel things, and then we. the mind's reaction of having aversion, a a painful feeling, pleasant feeling, and then the perceptions and the memory is basically the memory, uh, remembering each uh, thing and knowing what it is. And then the the past and future related about it too, that type of memory and the reaction. So uh, all of that together we call the mental process. And the ego is simply the sense of I that's in there and and the sense that, you know, there's, we're the the doer, the the thinker and the doer. Uh, And, you know, there's uh, the ego and thinking. I mean, the ego creates a thinking and you know, there's a French, uh, you know, a French philosopher named Descartes, and his famous uh, saying, 
was I don't know the Latin terms but uh, I knew it but anyway basically it, 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 uh, I think therefore I am so that's taken to be because we think therefore he thinks there must be some uh, permanent individual or or ego or whatever you know, I think therefore I am but a Buddhist would interpret it I think therefore I think I am you see the difference we think therefore we think I am somebody but it's because <laughs> we don't see through that uh, illusion I mean, we are some, I mean, the ego does exist, but on a relative level. You know, the I exists, it does exist in the mind for everybody except an arahant. The I does exist, but it's not a permanent entity. That's what you have to understand. On a relative level, yes, of course, it, it, is, it exists, and we need it to a large extent to, you know, function in the world, but it it's not doesn't have any absolute permanent uh, independent existence. That that's the main thing that needs to be understood about. So when you say the ego doesn't exist, it does exist on a relative level, but we have to understand how we're using the the words. In the ultimate sense, it's an illusion because that can be directly experienced in meditation when it dissolves. Anyway, what are some meditations for pride? <coughs> uh, well, th there's a story in the suttas. There was one uh, a female, like she was like a, a queen or a courtesan. Anyway, she was very beautiful and she was very proud about that. She used to get a lot of money for one-night stands and all that. But she was a disciple of the Buddha. There was a lot of them like that. And they were followers of the Buddha. And the Buddha didn't say, oh, you're bad or anything like that, no. But uh, anyway, or, you know, I don't know if I got the story exactly right. It could have been a queen or somebody. But anyway, uh, uh, some woman that was pride, proud about her looks, her body or whatever. So, she came to the Buddha. And then the Buddha, with a feat of psychic power, he caused her to have a, a, like a flash of images from what she looked like now, flashing it ahead 50 years, you know, a new image every uh, two or three years, until it was just an old withered up, shriveled up, uh, you know, 100-year-old person and then falling down dead. So that's a psychic power that Buddha could kind of uh, put that into somebody's mind. And, uh, and she saw that. And it cured her of her pride when she, when she saw that because you know, the, 
So that's just an example of, uh, I don't know if you can try that yourself, but. Uh, <laughs> but knowing these also, you know, the five things of the body. In fact, when you become a monk or a nun, you have to memorize these things. You have to say, head, hair, body, hair, skin, teeth, and nails. These are the outside of our body that everybody sees. When you see the outside of the body, you see hair on the head. You see hair on the body, you know, if you have some. Uh, teeth, and of course, the skin and the nails. And all five of those things are which people covet, in which they pamper, in which they use to flaunt and entice and to make beautiful, because that's what people see, right? And how many, you know, every five of them, how much money is spent on hair? How much money is spent on teeth, getting perfect teeth, making them white, getting the perfect nails, painting them up, all that even toenails and the skin. How much is spent in the cosmetic surgery? You know, probably trillions of dollars if you added more than maybe anything else in the world. I don't know, but, you know, well, a lot, right? But, and, and if you take all that away, then most people, you know, wouldn't be so attractive or it wouldn't attract others, you know, but you have to paint yourself up and then do all kinds of things, have the perfect everything then. So that's vanity and pride, you know, about that. But you take all that away and where does that go? I mean, some people may be all right looking without any of those things, but still, it's subject to change very quickly. You could get a skin disease and your skin could all of a sudden, you know, get all kind of, what they call it, plaque psoriasis or whatever it is, various things or, you know, anything could happen. Your hair could fall out. You know, all these things are subject to impermanence. So this is also a meditation. Meditating on these things. And uh, this body isn't all that flattering. You know, if you, especially, you know, people who may not have the perfect, you know, <laughs> which most people don't, right? So, you know, but we have to cover it up and we have to put on clothes and we have to do all this stuff and then, you know, you look like a little Barbie doll. <laughs> but, or men as well. But uh, so you can contemplate uh, that and stop wearing all those things uh, or doing all those things. Just let your body be uh, uh, go back to its normal. Stop taking a bath every day or putting on deodorant. See, it's only this thing that makes the body seem to be something pleasant. Otherwise, without that, the body is not all that pleasant. See, it's an illusion that the people have created. And it brings a lot of suffering. 
Because if you don't have the means and to do all that, then people feel uh, they feel like they're inferior or something. And all this glamour that you know in the world—it's it's really uh, something else. If we don't become attached to one person and love many, how do we form long-term committed relationship like marriages? Uh, no, a person can, you know, unless a person decides they really want to attain enlightenment in this life or they want to become a monk or a nun, but most... You know, you you can have a relationship, but you know, don't jump into it too quickly. Look at a lot of the broken relationships are people that got married too quickly before they knew the other person. You know, but even then, you can't guarantee what the other person is going to change, because it happens, right? So a person could be very nice for a few years, but whatever kind of karma we don't know, it could come up, and people can change. Uh, and if you're willing to accept that, and uh, you know if you need that kind of feedback or you want to have a family, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to know that it's it's got a lot a lot of heavy karma comes with it. And if you're willing to accept it and accept the suffering that, and the hardships that come with raising children, let's say you have a husband, and then and after the children are born, the husband. Whoosh, you know, and then the person has to raise the kids by themselves, and this is very difficult, especially if they don't have a you know high-paid kind of skill. And there's all kind of problems arise. So you got to think very carefully before getting into uh, uh, relationships. But you know, there's no uh, problem with that. I mean, we have to have marriages and we have to have kids in the world so people can be born. But uh, <coughs> Just to know that it's subject to change. And it's a very heavy karma. It's not something, you know, once you have a kid, it's, it's, it's a lifetime, right? I mean, those who are, who are parents. I don't know, I'm not a parent, so, but, you know. Uh, it's, a, it's a lifetime commitment. You could, just can't leave the children there and go away. Although some people do that, but then <laughs> they cause the child suffering. So it's not just you, you know. Uh, so... Be careful whenever you decide to do that. And uh, but you know, if, you know, many people have satisfying relationships. Uh, yes, also. So, But, you know, when you have a relationship with one person, it comes with many, many strings. And the other person has many, many expectations. And it limits your ability to meet other people because the other people get jealous. Oh, they don't want you to go around and meet other people and do things because, you know, they get jealous. They're afraid you're going to maybe, you know. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of... That's why I knew personally... When I was 12 years old, I'd never get married. <laughs> I, I, had, I had that intuitive uh, insight. 
mainly because my sister got married young and she had a lot of problems in her marriage and I thought, why do I want to get myself involved in all that kind of problem? But then later, when I went to Sri Lanka and I knew I was going to become a monk in Sri Lanka and I was uh, 26 years old and I was walking along the street uh, uh, Mawat Colombo and uh, they have a lot of palm readers out standing on the street with little placards, you know, saying, come, you know, let me read your hand, hand, you know, hand reading, palm reading. So, you know, I, I used to never do that. I mean, go get it done. But this time I, I thought, and I was going to be a monk. My ordination was a week away. And uh, so I thought, okay. <laughs> So the, the guy gets my hand. Then he goes, oh, if you're not married before you're 27, you'll never get married. And the next week I became a monk, and two weeks later I turned 27. So, and then I believed in that kind of thing. <laughs> Would you describe how to tell the difference between thinking as the sixth sense and uh, thinking as part of the fourth aggregate? Well, I don't know if there is a whole lot of uh, difference uh, because uh, uh, you know, the, the mind is the, the sixth uh, sense, not just thinking, but the mind and the, the, the mind and consciousness that can, uh, you know, sense uh, things. So I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. The fourth aggregate is more than just thinking. It's the whole mental formations uh, and, and so on. Is when I have a good... Uh, mindfulness, I can notice my, I notice that I am, I can notice the things I want to say to others. And so I examine why I want to say them. Much of the time it's just to portray or prop up their, my image I want to have. That's true. Uh, just to feed the ego. That's very true. It's a little unsettling. 
realizing that so much of what I've said done in the past was such a shallow reason to reinforce the image of me as funny, smart, or whatever. That's true. I mean, that's uh, much of our talk is that, in including this uh, malicious gossip that I was mentioning uh, today, and uh, you know, even uh, frivolous talk when we get talking with, with others and so on, boasting, you know, and exaggerating stuff to make people think we're, you know, something and all that. It's all. It, everything comes back to the ego. You can't get away from it. The ego is behind every single thing you do. That doesn't mean everything is bad necessarily. We can, with the, this good ego, I mean, you have a sense that, okay, I, I, you know, I, I'm a meditator, I want to do good, I want to change my mind, and you know, you lead a good life, and, and if you do that, 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 that's, you know, that's okay. We, we need the, the sense of self to practice, because it's kind of a catch-22. Because we have to use the ego to practice, but in the end we have to give it up to attain the highest uh, level. But we can't give it up right away. And so that's why you have to have a positive self-image, not the negative one. And you have to tame the ego. You have to tame it, not get rid of it. You have to tame it. So it doesn't do things that cause you... Uh, you know, regrets and fear and, and worry and, you know, suffering. And so that's what we're doing in meditation. We're, you know, taming it, not letting it get out of hand. But we do need a certain amount of it to basically to get by in the, in, in the world. Uh, but not to believe it's something real. We use it, but we don't believe that it's something absolutely real we use it just as a you know a necessity but and that's why actually the buddha had criterion about speech there's a famous sutta a discourse of the buddha given to his son rahula who was a young novice at the time and he was, he was talk, talking to him about speech. And he said, whenever you have the idea to speak, first you have to consider, is what I'm about to say going to be harmful for myself, harmful for others, or harmful for both myself and others? And if you see that it would be causing some kind of harm, don't say it. And then, while that's even before you start to speak, before, and then while you are speaking, if while you are speaking to somebody, you realize that, oh, what I'm saying is not very cool, zip it immediately. Don't carry on the conversation. You know, start to cough and say, excuse me, I think I'm sick. <laughs> well, maybe not that. <laughs> and then, after you have spoken and you realize that you did speak some uh, unskillful 
language that's going to maybe come back to you or hurt the other person, then, you know, vow not to do it again. And that could be the same criterion that you play, uh, apply to your actions also. Yeah. So, yeah, because the, the speech again is, uh, you know, has all those you know, connotations, creates a lot of karma, even more, just as much or even more than our actions. People are not going around physically abusing and killing things all the time, but with their mouth, uh, you know, they're creating a lot more. In fact, there's a saying that every person is born with an axe in their mouth. And that means that they, they cut off their foot or hurt themselves by, you know, the talk unmindful talk. And that's why the Buddha had a kind of a, a, a unwritten rule or a guideline for monks. Whenever two or more of you are together, speak only about the Dhamma or keep silence. In other words, not to get involved. And he rebuked them uh, for getting, in, even uh, having a little chit-chat and so on. He, he didn't approve of that. Not for monks, anyway. <clears throat> but, of course, in this day and age, it's, it's hard to do it. But again, the middle path is the criteria. You know, the Noble Eightfold Path is called the, the middle path. So, not indulging in the extremes. You know, we have to live in the world, we have to communicate with people, we have to you know, have interactions. And so we have to use the Dhamma, uh, use that Dhamma to maintain the middle path and not getting out onto the one extreme of denying yourself any type of creature comfort or any, any type of little just uh, pleasure. And on the other hand, overindulging. Uh, and so on, or not having any friends or any relationships as opposed to having, you know, too many and so on. How many objects do you need to have clear perception of per second to be in Kanaka Samadhi. 30. No. <laughs> uh, there's, there's no uh, you know, set number. It's, uh, but when you, you know, because when your mind is still not that clear and your mind is slow, then, you know, your Kanaka Samadhi will be slow, but when the mind gets clearer and more like that mirror, then, uh, you know, it could be uh, many. There's no way to count them, uh, really, but you, you can have a good idea. I mean, 
you know, when you meditate, you can, but I would say at least uh, for, uh, I mean, in terms of speeding up the rate of perception, you should be able to easily notice five or ten in one second. Uh, but it could be many more than that, too. But there, there, it's not that they're one after the other. They're simultaneously. You can hear, I mean, they may be one after another, but that is a way, way deep uh, speed, uh, trying to observe the speed of a supercomputer. Uh, so uh, it's doubtful you'll be able to reach that speed of uh, observing arising and vanishing. But very easily to notice... Uh, uh, you know, a few or five or ten or even more is uh, you know, not that uh, really that too much difficult. Because <clears throat> even when hearing, sometimes you you can hear five or six different sounds just you know in, at the same time, as well as feeling body sensations. You may not see them exactly arising and vanishing, but to to be able to just notice them come and come and go, come and go, or happening at the same time, even that is a very clear state of awareness. Even though you actually may not see them arising and vanishing, but be able to be aware of many things going on at the same uh, time is an equally deep level of. Awareness. Like in the room, and there's the sound of the fans going on all the time. There's the sound of the motor of this uh, uh, machine over, over here. There's, a, you know, maybe a birds chirping outside uh, and other things, uh, you know, and, and you can hear them basically all at the, you know, more or less uh, at, the, at the same time, or as well as feeling sensations, different sensations. So just, you know, check it out in your next meditation. You know. <clears throat> and the more things you can notice, that means the mind is clearer because it's, you know, it's, a, it's like the mirror. The more dust that is cleaned out, out of the mirror, the more you see the uh, reflection. Any good story of yogis or meditators rupturing a blood vessel or tearing a ligament from sitting meditation? <laughs> Suggestions on how to prevent this. <laughs> Middle path. And practice yoga. Those exercises I've been showing you about, you know, stretching out the knee joints and the hips and the, and the ligaments, but, you know, in a measured way and uh, gradually uh, building up the ability for the stress in those to take it, you know. But, yeah, there's something interesting. When I, when I first started teaching retreats, this was like back in 1980, uh, 
uh, well, you know, 1980, 80, 81 in the Sri Lanka. A lot of Westerners used to come up to this place called Nilambi, Nilambi Meditation Center near Galaha. And, uh, you know, most of them were like, you know, hippie types, fresh off the trail, half drugged and everything else, you know. But uh, like I was <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> uh, anyway. So they, they came up there to meditate, and I was teaching courses, not the only, there were some other people teaching courses. But then I, I left for a long time, and then I came back. And then over some period of time, uh, th there came to be a new medical term called Nilambi knees. I said, what the heck, Nilambi knees? You know, somebody mentioned that. He asked me, do you, do you have Nilambinis? What, what's that? <laughs> then they said, it was because these, these meditators that go up there and they're f you know, see somebody in a lotus and force themselves to you know, want to sit in a lotus position when they, you know, they weren't really ready for that, or maybe not a, that extreme, but anyway, you know, sitting a long time, and then they, they got damaged to their knees. And they went down to a doctor in Kandy. Some doctor in Kandy is where Godwin Samaratna, the head of the monastery, used to send people down if they had problems, go down and see that doctor. So he went down they went down there. And his doctor had you know, was hearing all these problems that people were having uh, with their knees, you know, uh, what do they call it? Meniscus, torn meniscus and whatever different things. And uh, so he coined the, that term, Nilambi knees, the, the doctor. And so when somebody came down and said, oh, you got Nilambi knees. <laughs> and so <laughs> that became a, a new medical term. Right? So, yeah, it, it has happened, not to me personally. I mean, I've been sitting in the full lotus position since, uh, you know, 1974. I mean, you know, more than 43 years. I mean, for, you know, hours. And probably have more than many thousands of hours of sitting in the foot, but I've never had any pain in my knees or any problem with my knees, no torn meniscuses or no anything else. And I don't know why, but, you know, everyone's different, but I'm just saying. Uh, but, you know, the fear that people have about that is, you know, the fear about damaging their knees. And no doubt, some, many people may do that. Whether they did it because they were forcing themselves too much or something, I don't know. Or maybe it's just in the genes or whatever. But, but everybody has to, you know, you have to use your common sense about it. And, uh, you know... You know, but I was a gung-ho monk, you know, when I was young, you know, 25 years old, I was gung-ho, you know, hell-bent on enlightenment, you know. And I was, you know, living in the forest and living with snake-infested caves and practicing death meditation and doing all these kind of things. So I was, I was a little bit crazy, right? But it seemed to be turned out all right, I don't know, but... Uh, <coughs> so... 
you know, when you're first starting to practice, you have all these, you know, you get excited and you think enlightenment should come within a few months or even just a couple of retreats, you know, you should be able to attain stream entry and this and that. So people have a lot of expectation, a lot of energy, but then, you know, after, you know, many retreats, they finally realize, well, maybe a little longer than I thought. Uh, what is the most effective way to confess my wrongdoings to the Buddha? Well, you, you don't confess your wrongdoings to the Buddha, you confess it to your own mind, the inner Buddha. That means the, the wisdom nature of your own mind. You're acknowledging that I have you know, done something unskillful and you kind of, when you're saying, I ask forgiveness from the Buddha, you're asking forgiveness basically from your deeper mind, from the pure mind, not some external, uh, you know, like a god or whatever. Buddha is not like that. Uh, you can pray to or, or forgive. So it's symbolical when you read these things, May the Buddha forgive me, the Dhamma forgive me. You're basically, you're addressing your deeper consciousness so that hopefully you will uh, uh, muster up the strength not to repeat it. That's the main thing. Of course, as monastics, we actually have to confess our wrongdoings to other monks. And then that's like you know, because then everyone will know what we did. So, therefore, it's an extra, uh, an extra kind of incentive not to, not to uh, break uh, the precepts. Because then, if we confess it to another, they'll say, "You stupid fool! Why did you do that?" You know. Well, they may not say that, but uh, you know, it's kind of that shame, a sense of shame. Uh, in fact, that's actually a spiritual quality considered a, a, a very positive and good spiritual quality is a sense of shame and uh, scruples, you know, about what you're doing. And not being a proud about the thing, bad things that you do, but having a sense. Because it will help you to not do it. You know, it will help you to muster up the energy not to continue uh, doing it. It's called Hiriyun Otappa. Pali words. Those are considered uh, good qualities. As a devoted lay person, without likely ever becoming a monk, how do you know? How can I best practice the Dhamma? I didn't know I would become a monk when I was, you know, even 21 or 22 years old. 
you know, minding my own business. I followed the hippie trail over to India, you know, staying stoned on LSD and hashish and, and uh, even got put in prison in Afghanistan. I was lucky to get out with my life. You know, you know, went went to India and, you know, just by whatever, I, I, you know, bumped into somebody that started talking about meditation and, what meditation? And it, it like struck something deep inside. That's what I got to do. Of course, I had done this paper on Buddhism that I already mentioned before that. So I knew a little bit about the Dhamma. And because I was staying stoned and I did foolish things that got me put in prison in Afghanistan, my sentence was $500 fine or life in prison. Fortunately, I had $500. Uh, but anyway, uh, so then I thought, you know, I got to India. Uh, actually, I was passing my way through Nepal to go trekking in the Himalayas because all the hippies were going there to Nepal to go trekking in the Himalayas. And uh, so I went through Sarnath, which is the place where the Buddha preached his first sermon in India, so in the Buddhist holy place. And I, I went, went through there just because, okay, I had studied Buddhism. I thought I was on the way, so oh, let's go check it out. And I was sitting there, and then I was, uh, you know, just thinking, trying to remember what the, and I realized I got to I got to get off these drugs, you know, I mean, because it, I could have been killed, you know, because of my foolish actions, staying so stoned. Allah had lost my common sense, and and so it was in that state of mind. Then when I heard about some, some mother passing uh, Westerner who had just come from a meditation course. And uh, I was up in the Himalayas, sitting by a nice Himalayan river. And actually, I was uh, stoned already. <laughs> and a guy came down, like out of the blue, you know, and sat down and started talking about meditation. And all of a sudden, my mind was just riveted about what he was saying, about you know getting into the body and feeling sensations. Well, wow. And at the end of that talk, I said, that's what I got to do. Now, I don't know if the drugs had anything to do with it, but <laughs> I, I ran almost two days out of the mountains, even without shoes. My shoes were broken. To get to the meditation course before it filled up. Because this guy said, yeah, there's going to be a meditation course in a couple of weeks. And that's what had, had such a grip on me like that. you know. And I went to that meditation course and halfway through that course, I had just a mind-blowing experience. It just like wiped out half of my past uh, cravings and I knew I had to become a monk. It didn't happen right away, but it was such a powerful experience. Yeah. So uh, th those things can and do happen to people. I know other people that have had similar type of very powerful life-changing experiences. So anyway, uh, on the last day, I'm going to be giving some other pointers about how to practice uh, the Dhamma in the, in the lay life. <clears throat>
apart from what I mentioned today, which is sort of a foundation, but there's some other uh, things to uh, the help kind of. is interesting. Biology and evolution have created a genetic urge to seek out pleasure and avoid pain. For example, even one-celled organisms also, you know, move toward nutrients and, uh, you know, stay away from toxins. And I gave that example, I think, in the first day's talk about the ant who's crawling around and even it senses danger and wants to get away from that and seeking uh, happiness. Uh, so by working to eliminate attachment to the five aggregates, are we rewiring our DNA in addition to our minds? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, the DNA is part of karma. And we've created uh, that. And our karma attracts us to uh, parents that are going to provide the DNA uh, to the new life that will help them. And you can even change your DNA now in this life over a period of time to a certain extent. If you develop that deep level of uh, mindfulness and wisdom, this rewiring the you know, the brain, changing one's habits, and so on. That can alter uh, the DNA and the way that you change, and even the brain. If you start to experience altered states of consciousness and start to be able to uh, quite frequently enter deep meditation states, that's also going to uh, uh, dramatically affect the, the body in the mind that would then attract you to environments where you will have access to that kind of DNA that you need to accord with what your destiny is or what your karmic path is leading toward. That's why everybody is born basically because of the past karma. And you're born in a certain country, certain, to certain parents with certain types of DNA, whether you're sickly, you know, have a DNA that causes you to have a lot of sickness and other problems, or DNA to be healthy, that's part of karma. The past karma. Because when you die, the mind is like magnetized. So our, our mind with its thoughts, its memory, its, its accumulated greed or hatred or other types of thoughts or even wisdom, this, it's kind of, you know, uh, creates a, a magnetized uh, field. And when you die, the last 
sort of thoughts in your mind are said to determine where that mind will be attracted to. And that's why the importance is purifying one's thoughts so at the last moment, at the time of death, you're not, you know, thinking about, you know, your grandkids or you're not thinking about, you know, uh, some, you know, body grudge or, you know, not having forgiven people or other negative thoughts. Because if the mind leaves the body with these kind of thoughts, it's going to be attracted to a place where you're going to have those kind of thoughts in the future or be subjected to those kind of thoughts. But if you're free from that and you have thoughts of very, very positive types of thoughts and thoughts of wisdom and, and, and letting go, having let go of, uh, you know, greed and hatred to a, a large extent and developed consciousness, then like a magnetic, a magnetic field, pull, the mind will be attracted to a place that will allow you to then carry on and work out the karma that you had created or to experience the results of the karma that you had been cultivating. That's why it's very important. And that's why the whole practice of Dhamma, you could say, is a preparation for death. But because we don't know when we'll die, or how we'll die, or where we'll die, uh, we can't bank on uh, putting things off until later. Because there's an interesting saying by some ancient person, Tomorrow or the next life, we don't know which is going to come first. There's so many people who thought they were going to live for, you know, many more years and they were dead the next morning by so many different means. Getting stabbed, murdered at night, or dying of a heart attack, or, you know, dying in some natural catastrophe, or happens to thousands of people every single day across the earth. That's why we shouldn't say, I'm going to put off practicing until I retire or put off until later because, you know, there may not be a later or much later. Okay. Better finish this up. Would you please elaborate further on balancing vipassana and samatha practice and how the two complement one or another? Uh, Maybe tomorrow. Too complicated, right? It take too long right now. Can you be both a mindful and a forgetful person? Uh, yes. You know, forgetting is sometimes an you know an organic brain thing. You know, when you get older, the brain cells don't work 
so good anymore and people forget things. It doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're not mindful or you're not mindful in other aspects. You know, being paying attention to what you're doing rather than remembering, paying attention to what you're doing in the... Uh, but then if the mind spaces out and you're unmindful, uh, these things may, you know, happen even to... Uh, we don't know. There hasn't been any research done about enlightened uh, people and uh, who have become ill, at least not any that I know of, and how that, you know, affects their cognition. I mean, it would depend on what state of enlightenment they had uh, attained. If it was full enlightenment, it, it may well not really uh, affect them. But if it was just some lesser stage of enlightenment, then it, it, uh, it might have affected them like, like that. You know? like there's a case of Achan Cha, who's a very well-known uh, meditation master in Thailand, and he you know, had many Western disciples, still has. And he was sick for almost nine years in a semi-vegetative state. And you couldn't really tell from the outside if he was conscious or, or not most of the time. Or what, you, you couldn't tell if he was mindful or not. We don't, there's no way of knowing. But there's other others who, you know, the Buddha, the Buddha, was the Buddha. That's a, another story. But he said even when he was near his death, of course he died at fairly young, 80, 80 years old. But he said that he could give a Dhamma talk day and night for many days and never repeat the same words twice or the same you know, phrases twice. That his <laughs> knowledge and memory was so vast. But you know, that's a Buddha. And a Buddha has many more qualities than even just a, an average enlightened person. Uh, okay, I think uh, that's enough for this evening. Does uh, My mother just reached 100 years old last week, and her memory is fantastic, but now she forgets a couple little things. I said, give her a break. <laughs> you know, she thinks it's bad that she forgot somebody's name. <laughs> you know? Even we forget people's names, right? She's 100 years old, and she's complaining that she forgot somebody's name. So. But, uh, 